0: Hi, I'm Dr. Judy, and welcome to Supercharged Life, where I help you discover new ways to create success, wellness, and fulfillment, and give you tangible tools to supercharge your life. And today I have an amazing treat for you guys because I have not one, but two incredible guests today. First, she's been making us laugh for decades, comedian, actress, author, and now podcast host of the podcast, The Margaret Show. Margaret Cho! Yay! We're so glad to have you here. And our second guest, you'll know him from the NBC series Superstore and the box office smash Crazy Rich Asians. Everybody's seen that movie, Nico Santos! Yay! We're so excited to have both of you here. And we're going to talk about so many different things, but The theme of the supercharged secret of the day is going to be about laughter and humor. And Margaret and Nico are going to teach us how we can all have more of the secret sauce in our lives to boost mental and physical health. If you're not convinced, listen to these stats. People are two times more productive after taking a humor break. They experience 23% increase in memory recall and 39% decrease in stress just by anticipating humor. And the power of laughter can truly heal and transform us during our darkest times including times of grief and adversity. And humor has been shown to boost not only mental wellness, but actually physical wellness as well, and can be a really great adjunct of therapy, which actually a lot of therapists are using this idea of humor therapy now. So we're going to talk about all of that. But we're also going to talk about an alarming rise in attacks against Asian Americans in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And As I'm looking at the news unfold, it is just making me so sad. All three of us are Asians. We're all from different backgrounds, but we're all part of the Asian community. I'm... From Taiwan, Margaret is Korean, and Nico is from the Philippines. So I was just wondering how you guys are feeling about everything that you're seeing. I mean, obviously we're all staying at home, following the guidelines. I hope nothing has actually been directed at each of you personally. But how are you feeling about our Asian brothers and sisters and what they're experiencing right now?
1: Um, I think it's really disturbing because it's again underlining this idea that we're not Americans. You know that we are somehow retaining that kind of otherness, even though we are completely Americans, we're Americanized. um, That's the thing that it's always harder that I find for Asian Americans to fully feel really American because it's almost as if the society at large doesn't count us as that. And here's another example of it. And it's really, it's upsetting because it's like we're all dealing with this uh, real nightmare in the same way as the rest of the country, the rest of the world. Yet, for some reason, we're feeling singled out, feeling um, endangered because of our identity that is a, a projection. Not even it's not even the reality of who we actually are.
2: I mean, you know, this same thing. It's 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 really disturbing and and uh, jarring to hear all these stories have been coming out in the media about about all these sort of like racist um, incidences. But you know, like the same thing happened um, during the AIDS crisis. The same thing happened during. you know when the AIDS crisis was happening and like gay people were targeted when 9-11 was happening Anybody who looked Middle Eastern was targeted. It it doesn't matter if they were Middle Eastern or not Um, it's just this insane sick thing that uh, that uh, Evil people do out there where they need somebody to blame and and it's just coming out in these awful ways Yeah, but The thing is
1: is that we're also all the doctors so don't try it girl like Yeah, it's like all Asians are doctors, (laughs) so we're the ones actually beating everybody. I mean, it's like the entire thing is like really like you're gonna be you're gonna be mad and like target violence against people at the gas station or at at their restaurants, and yet you're not. I know you're not gonna discriminate against the Asian American doctors because we're the ones solving it, girl.
2: Yeah, I'm like, do you know how many (laughs) many nurses out there are Filipino? I'm like, oh yeah. (laughs) I, I mean, really? I mean, please. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's hilarious. And you know what? You're so right, because there's this weird, funny theme that is a connector among all Asian cultures somehow that parents dream of their kids to be in the medical profession. So actually, we're dominating some sectors of that medical profession. We're taking care of you if you get COVID, you guys. (laughs) Exactly. So don't forget that part. Uh, Yes. And, you know, it's funny because it is sort of a uh, blame is sort of a, a phenomenon of convenience, I think, because people get scared. People don't know what to do with that and they always want a scapegoat. And just this idea of othering, needing to separate yourself from someone. And clearly we haven't seen this for the first time. There has been a lot of xenophobia, this fear and hatred of people that you want to say are foreign on a lot of other types of historical events for example the islamophobia after 911 or other viruses and diseases do you guys remember you know when sars or ebola came out i mean there was definitely xenophobia against the communities that they felt like the virus originated from. And so it's just happening again. And I I wonder what you guys think too about, you know, how some of our national leaders and right now, especially the president has been calling it the Chinese flu. I know the two of you are not Chinese, but how do you feel when just our president is even saying that? I mean, do you think that that has an effect on how the public is perceiving this?
1: Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's really irresponsible, but I mean, his irresponsibility is the reason we're in all of this. You know, he's trying to really deflect any blame coming onto his own policies, his own, you know, really lackadaisical attitude towards this this virus. Even if it's maybe not purposeful, it's certainly his way of deflecting blame.
2: Yeah, I mean, and honestly, I mean, like, are any of us surprised? that he's calling it the Chinese. None of us, none of us are surprised he's doing this.
0: And as you both mentioned, you know, whether or not it's intentional or it's just carelessness, it's still not okay. And that is why the World Health Organization has been advocating, hey, you guys, we cannot name these viruses after where we first discover them, right? Because when Ebola happened, Africans were targeted because of the fact that the whole virus was named after a region, right? After an actual historical landmark. And, and I think that this, is part of the work that we have to do. I mean, at this point, and I know that these numbers are going up, but more than a thousand attacks have been reported to stop AAPI hate, which is an online hate crime reporting website in the past two weeks alone. And those are just the ones that are being reported. I'm hearing things like people are you know, being spat on on the street. Um, people are calling Asians patient zero when they see them at the market. And it's just so disheartening because we're not the common enemy, you guys. The common enemy is the COVID nineteen virus, and we need to be taking that more seriously and actually problem solving that.
1: Right. There's no nothing to be gained from anything like that, like any kind of hatred or any kind of racist attack.
2: Yeah. You know, I've never felt. Um, you know, I, I moved to this country when I was a teenager. Uh, for the most part, I've never really felt any sort of like racism towards me or my family. Like the thing that I always sort of like watch my. Uh, like my back for is is homophobia like I'm I'm a very visibly queer person it's it's always like this thing like when I was a teenager and even to this day like that's the thing that I'm usually just like oh is somebody gonna call me you know like the F word or whatever Um, I've never experienced uh, people targeting me for for being Asian and this is the first time in my life where I really feel that fear, you know, my my mom and my brother are in the Bay Area, um, and uh, I, I kind of want them to come down here, uh, just so we can be finally be together because uh, of what my family is going through right now. Um, and I am seriously, I told my brother, it's like, don't stop anywhere, like fill up your tank. Can your car make it from the Bay to LA without stopping anywhere? Because I don't want them, you know, stopping at some random gas station and, and mm. be targeted. And I've never had to worry about that before really, you
0: know? Right. The fact that you even have to say that out loud, right? And actually, my husband has been the one warning me about this. Like, hey, you got to be careful when you go out. There's a lot of xenophobia right now against Asians. And same with you, Nico. The last time I was targeted for my race was actually over a decade ago. And so in some ways, it's kind of faded into the background in my own memory. And the fact that we all have to sort of watch our backs more, especially in certain regions of the country, I feel like especially regions where maybe People don't have a lot of Asian Americans walking around. You know, maybe those areas are even more targeted because then you stick out like a sore thumb. And so it it is unfortunate that that's one of the things that we have to watch out for, and not just, you know, whether or not we're going to contract this virus when we go outside. Yeah,
1: it's really terrible. I mean, it's really, but I I definitely think that I grew up, well, uh, growing up during the AIDS epidemic in San Francisco really um, made me very conscious of. How prejudice can really add to the insult of a disease that's already in existence. You know, for the gay community in San Francisco, the the bias against us was completely devastating. So it's a double it, it's a double whammy of both the disease and all of the the discrimination that comes with it.
0: Right, and I think living there and seeing it for yourself, Margaret. I mean, and actually both of you guys have a Bay Area connection and so do I. I went to college in the Bay Area. So yeah, so I, I mean, I love the Bay Area, but you're right. I mean, I think when you grow up and you see that, uh, it's a very, very different thing to experience it and see it around you. And and knowing, as you mentioned, that it really then just makes the problem even worse. I mean, here we have a real health crisis that we're all trying to address. Um, and, and yet the xenophobia is sort of taking front and center, which it really, it really shouldn't. It's detracting from what we actually need to do. Exactly. And I know that for both of you... Um, you guys have also been very open and and active in the uh, LGBTQ movements yourself and identifying as part of that group. And Nico, I know you just mentioned that when you were growing up, that was actually more of the issue that you were worried about, that perhaps you would be judged for that. Um, How do you feel like that's changed over time? And do you still feel like it's a problem?
2: Um, You know, it... it Ebbs and flows. I mean, we're definitely like, there's definitely been vast improvements in terms of uh, acceptance and tolerance and and, mm-hmm. and all, all that stuff. Um, but, you know, I, I moved from the Philippines to Oregon. Mm-hmm. So oh my gosh. This thing there's where, no
0: Asians there, probably. Oh
2: my God. Like, it was, <laughs> we were the, oh, I think there was like one other Filipino person in my high school. By the time that person left, I was the only Filipino there. And even like you know, like even like uh, with queer people, like there was only like one other, like none of us were out really. <laughs> there, there was one out uh, queer person in my high school, and they they graduated, and I was like, I guess I'm all alone. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's 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 definitely changed, but it's I don't know, it's it's just ingrained in your brain sometimes. For me. There's always a little bit of PTSD when it comes to that, like, you know, when you're walking down the street and you see, like, a group of, like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know if, if anybody else does this, but, like, when I see a group of, like, teenagers, to this day, I am a 41-year-old man. or <laughs> about to be a 41-year-old man.
1: <laughs> yeah. Next week,
2: when I see a group of teenagers sort of, like, in the distance laughing, that's just, like... This reaction that I get from my body, I'm like, oh my god, they're they're gonna they're talking about me, they're making fun of me, they're gonna come beat me up mm. because I'm gay. You mm-hmm. know, it's it's still like playing. It's it's a record that plays in the back of my head.
0: Yeah. Especially because you have had continuous experiences with that. And you know, Margaret, I know that you identify as bisexual. And what I always think is so interesting is that people seem to really not understand that. And even within the LGBTQ community, sometimes people will say bisexual, what does that mean? And why don't you pick a lane? And I don't understand why people have to like keep dividing down, right? You're already one category and then you got to like keep Mm -hmm. going with that. So what's your experience with that? And why do you think that happens? Well, it even happens within the gay community because
1: bisexuality is often an identity that people claim when they're not fully ready to really come out as gay. Sometimes they'll, in the interim, say, well, I'm bi, as if to sort of placate um, (laughs) maybe family members into thinking there's still a chance that we could be half straight or something. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. Leave the door open for a heteronormative relationship.
1: (laughs) that kind of idea and then even, even a lot of gay people couldn't imagine being bisexual. And I think, um, I grew up within the gay community. My parents owned a gay bookstore mm-hmm. and, um, they were fine when I came out as a lesbian, but when I came out as bisexual, my parents were like, Oh no, <laughs> no. So they just said, Oh no, no. Oh no. 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 Wow. No. Like, <laughs> no. But it's like a very confusing identity for them because that to ah. them is like, well, that's not possible. I mean, you can't be mm. both, but you can be. And um, so it's definitely confusing um, for a lot of people. But it's about like my journey as bisexual now is the continual kind of like explaining of it. Um, mm-hmm. And it, it definitely uh, it changes as I change. But it, it's something that is always going to be there, I think, for, for my experience.
0: Right. And just this human nature of wanting to divide and divide and divide. Like, I don't know if you guys have both experienced something that I've experienced from time to time, which is just that sometimes you're too Asian and other times you're not Asian enough. And there's there's always a judgment about that. Yeah. It's something I struggle with.
2: I think um, within the Asian community, it's like, you know, because I was born and raised in the Philippines and, you know, like, I think a lot of people assume that I'm just like, that I was born in, in the United States, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, like ha- my the first half of my life, I was actually in in the Philippines and then grew up there, and then I moved here, and and there's just always this thing of like, am I like being seen as a as a fob or am I like mm-hmm. I, I never feel like I quite fit in to the group, you know? It's uh, yeah.
0: I think there's a lot of judgment. And again, it probably bears on the individual's own experiences of what an Asian should be like. That makes them make those comments. But, you know, I've had people um, sometimes say, well, why do you dye your hair? Why don't you just... Have your hair the way that it normally is or the way that you were born. And to me, I'm not dying my hair so I can look more American. I mean, I look Asian. I am Asian. I don't have a problem with that. I just enjoy dyeing my hair. But it's interesting that people even have a judgment about how you want to style your hair. And if you have highlights and it means that you're trying to be too white. Um, and I've always found that to be interesting. Like, why what does it matter to you? What <laughs> my hair Right. Looks why on. is
1: and then why is that a judgment on how we are supposed to feel about our race? You know, people can change their appearance any way they choose and it doesn't have to have a a reflection on how they feel about their race and there's a continual attitude about especially asian americans like whether uh we're called a banana you know like a white on the inside yellow on the outside that kind of weirdness of like there's no degrees by which i'm asian i'm asian american i just am and um the way that i choose to uh style my appearance or behave has no bearing on my asian pride or the makeup of my identity
2: right yeah i think you just also i mean for me at least like you kind of reach a point in your life where you just have to accept or just realize like there's no right or wrong way of being asian there's Mm -hmm. no right or wrong way of being gay yes Um, this is part of my identity and 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 i kind of just had to like take stock and be like, it doesn't matter that I'm doing X, Y, or Z or, or, or whatever. Like, I, like it doesn't change my, me being Asian doesn't change my experience as a gay man. I'm still a part of this community and uh, right. should really just sort of like not pay attention to any of those things.
0: Exactly. Cause what really matters is your own identification of who you are and how you feel you belong to a group and don't. And both of you guys are, are such pioneers in, in many ways because Margaret, you were the original, um, First, I, in, my, in my eyes, the first, you know, real public person that was performing, doing comedy, had TV show, um, doing stand up, and everybody looked up to you for paving the way for other Asian comedians. And, well, you know,
2: it was the reason I got into comedy.
0: Oh, that's, that's amazing.
1: So it's so great. Aww. It's so great. I'm so proud of that. That's, you know, to me, I think the best achievement is that I was able to inspire people like Nico and um, people, people like Aquafina and, and people yeah. out there who are doing such great, great work. And I'm, I'm so proud of that. So that's my greatest achievement is Nico, my baby. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love it. All of my babies. Oh, so cute. And, and Nico, I think you're doing amazing work right now and being able to portray these multidimensional characters, right? And actually being able to portray all of these different ways of, you know, what does an Asian male look like? What does a, a gay Asian male look like? Um, what the role that you play on Superstore, an undocumented uh, Filipino male and like, oh, wow, that changes my view of what undocumented people look like in the United States. And I think that that's very Cool that you've been able to do that.
2: Yeah, it's 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 it is incredible. Like when, when I sort of like look back at like when I first started doing comedy, if you had told me, you know, like over a decade ago when I started that I would have a career in movies and television portraying queer Asian characters that are yeah. out, that you know, that that are complex, that are you know, like very human and relatable, like I would have said that that's impossible. Like the industry doesn't do that. Um, but the fact that I'm, you know, like a working actor, exactly portraying those characters is is insane. And, you know, we have people like Margaret to thank for paving the way because that wouldn't have happened.
0: Absolutely. It's so, exciting.
1: it's so great. I'm so proud of us. I'm really, I'm really happy about that. It's really, really cool.
0: Yeah. Margaret, you have just been really inspirational to me personally as well. And you know, whenever I watch your stand up, I love the fact that you are so authentic with your approach. And I think we're all talking about this theme of, you know, being able to be ourselves, being able to be ourselves when we are in public, just as we would be when we're with our friends and family. Well, I want to turn the conversation a bit, you know, now that we're sort of talking about some wonderful things in all of your lives and also what we've been able to achieve as a group. I want to talk about, just how laughter, it can be so healing, even during times of pain and struggle. And right now we have an international struggle. It's not just the United States, as you know, although right now we are sort of at the epicenter of these COVID-19 cases. And everybody is sheltering in place, hopefully. Um, some people I know are maybe not taking it as seriously as others, and we need to be, because the quicker we can all do that, the sooner this will be all over. That is the funny thing. But yeah, people struggle, right? I mean, you're staying in one spot. Both of you guys are very busy people. You're used to running around doing a lot of things and yet you guys are sheltering in place and you guys are staying at home So how are you surviving this uh self-quarantine that we're all doing right now?
1: Well, i'm grateful that uh This is happening at a time where we can all connect through social media and also streaming services So what's really fun is all of the talk about the tiger king like everybody's (laughs) obsessed like I I'm really, everybody has their own lane. Like some, some people are real, like team Carol. I'm really, I'm really team husbands. I love all of the husbands. Like it to me is so, I'm also team eye ring. Like what is that ring that he has like right by his eye? Like what is like, what did he pierce? Like it's not his eyebrow and it's not his it's like, I don't know. It's like his eye, uh, temple or something, like the fold but follow, right there, the fold right here. I'm like, I guess I could pierce that. So, I mean, <laughs> I'm obsessed with that. All of the memes that have come out of that, and also, I think coronavirus memes in general are really funny. Yes, so the, the humor that people kind of come up with on social media is really a, a balm.
2: I am, I am a big fan of like, um and I, I usually get into trouble with this because I like laugh at the most inappropriate times or if it's like a really, you know, like dark subject matter or, or inappropriate. Yeah, like subject matter, I, I sort of like, laughter has always been my coping mechanism. Mm-hmm. It's it's just, if, if I don't find uh, a, a way to laugh at, 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 and sort of like use that as a, as a, uh, a pressure release valve, I, I go insane and I spiral. Um, you know, I mean, uh, as you know, like I, I lost my my stepfather last week uh, to COVID. Um, it's been surreal to say the least. Um, you know, it, it it ebbs and flows where I'm feeling. Um, and but I I do I, uh, I I know myself well enough that if if I don't take time to sort of like watch something that you know like it doesn't even have to have be comedy, but like I've been. I've been watching a lot of comedy to sort of like make me smile and, and sort of like make me forget even for a few moments what my family's going through. Um, but like puppy videos. Oh, yeah. Aww. Puppy videos. Who doesn't um, love those? Yeah. Or, uh, military um, homecoming reunions.
1: Oh, that's a really good one. That's a good thing. Yeah, I love that.
2: Yeah. So anything that sort of like will make me laugh or even like if, if I feel like I'm sort of like being numb for most of the day and I need like I, I need some sort of like emotional release I, I sort of tend to sort of watch somebody sent me um what was it oh uh Ben Platt and the cast of Dear Evan Hansen singing You Are Not Alone um and I, it kind of destroyed me the other day I was like mm. feeling was feeling numb for two days and just having cried and um I watched that video and it like just Full sobs for like twenty minutes trying to yeah. deal with my with my emotions. It's a uh, yeah. It's it's um. It's been a weird week.
0: <laughs> yeah, we're so sorry to hear about so your sorry. yeah your loss, and I know that this is so new for you, and it just happened. And even your mother, she's also tested positive for COVID. How's she doing?
2: Yes. You know what? I mean, um, she is. She's doing much better. I actually I just spoke to her today, and so she's actually like. Today she's able to. She was able to get up around her home, and she doesn't feel um, any symptoms anymore, which is great. Oh. So um, I think we just have to wait a few more days before. Um, we, uh, my brother also lives in the Bay Area, like super close to her. So I think by like by next week um, he's able to be with her, and I'm and I'm trying to, I'm trying to get them down here so we can all be together and. Oh. Uh, and yeah. be, be together as a family. It's just weird. Everything that's happening doesn't seem real because it's like, you know, like everything's been happening in this in this vacuum and, and we're unable, like we weren't able to go to the hospital. We weren't able to comfort each other because we're apart because of the pandemic. So like, I know in my brain that like, obviously like everything that's happening, it's happening, it's real, but it's hard to process when, you know, we can't even have a funeral and then stuff like that. It's just like, This bits of information that's in my brain, but it doesn't seem real right now.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is not just statistics for you. We know how crazy the statistics have been for the pandemic. There's more than 1 million confirmed cases worldwide, and actually a quarter million of those are right now here in America. But I think sometimes without that sort of personal connection to what that really means, sometimes people don't understand it. The fact that you just told me right now that you can't even have a funeral because we can't have those gatherings. Right. I mean, you can't even yeah. bring people together um, to really say goodbye. Um, that's so difficult. And, and yet through all of that, you're still trying to find ways to, to laugh because, you know, it's cathartic. It's cathartic in times of pain.
2: I just feel like for, for, for me at this point, it is like um, it, it's self-care and like I'm, I'm trying not to feel guilty about needing needing a detachment from from mm. from feeling really hard sad deep feelings yeah. because if I do allow myself to sort of like stay in that place I, I know how bad that would get for me so you know um, I, I guess there's no rule book for for grieving you know people right. grieve the way they grieve and and for me at this moment it's important for me to sort of like Take some time for myself to be able to detach because, I, again, it, you know, like I, I can't live in that dark place for very long because it's not going to be bad. It's going to be, it's not going to be good for me. It's not going to be good for my family. Right. You know, I, we still have, I still have a lot of stuff to do and take care of with my family. So,
0: right.
2: um, self care, you know.
0: Yep. Laughter is self-care and Margaret, I know that you've been very open about your own trauma history. And I was just wondering if, you know, dealing with trauma and, and trying to get through that, how has humor and laughter helped you and what motivated you to become a comedian?
1: Well, I think it's always, um, it's, I, I just always, really loved stand-up comedy as far as I could understand it. Like I remember watching Joan Rivers on Saturday Night Live when they used to have comedians on. And it was so exciting because here was this comedian who had this audience who already seemed to know her. Like she already had friends that understood her jokes that she had like um, her tagline, which is, can we talk? Which is (laughs) to me very meaningful because it was like, Oh, because they already know her, they already have a relationship with her. So because I felt like a really lonely kid growing up. So I think that maybe stand up comedians seem like they were friends with the world. And that's why I wanted to pursue it. And why I still am a fan of it. I mean, I think that lightness and joy right now has to be front and center. It's the thing that we have to like, seek out. And for my lightness, I've been watching movies from the 70s. So yesterday I watched Eyes of Laura Mars. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> it's streaming on Criterion Channel. You have to watch it. The it's such a it's not a funny movie, but it's really funny because it's just um you know the sort of like craziness of 70s movies and like fashion photography. And I think it's the camp value alone. I think that any of Faye Dunaway's work, whether it's mommy dearest <laughs> Mm-hmm. or I of Laura Mars, really, you get a lot out of it. And I think um, we have to just revel in the joyful things that make us all happy, like our own, like whatever that place is in your heart. Um, for me, I can get lost in a YouTube key and peel marathon or <laughs> anything anything like that. I, I feel like, you know, to me, all of the our entertainers are much more important now than they ever were.
0: I agree. And I think again, laughter is the best medicine. It truly is. And that lightness and joy has to absolutely be front and center. And I think that it's no surprise that therapists have started to tap into this and they call it laughter therapy because we've done all this research into this and it actually changes the immune system. It boosts your immune system. It changes your brain chemistry. It allows the release of endorphins and other happy chemicals. And it just improves your quality of life and decreases your stress. So For people who are going through darkness, who are going through grief, who are going through difficult emotions, it's so nice to take a laughter break and we can all find ways to do that. And I thought it was really interesting. I found out that um, some research had shown that children laugh about 300 times a day, whereas adults closer to 15 times a day. So why Mm. do you think as we get older, we lose that? very spontaneous uh, access to this type of unbridled joy. Um, I think there's just,
1: you just become this idea of an adult. Like you become, you internalize the idea of what adulting actually is. And you think you have to be responsible for everything. And, and part of that is being serious. And actually that doesn't help. I think it's really funny to laugh and important to laugh and, because laughter is also breathing.
0: You add oxygen to your brain. You add oxygen to, like you said, it's breathing, and so it's something that should be so natural to us, and and yet we lose sight of it. So, you know, as comedians, what tips do you both have to help people tap into that power of laughter? And what has it done for each of you? I mean, Nico, was it a really important thing for you also to see yourself, you know, develop in this field and being a comedian? And where did that impetus come from when you were younger?
2: Well. I wanted to, you know, I started out in theater. Um, I thought I was gonna, you know, be on Broadway, and and uh, I, I just I just knew like when I, when I moved to the uh, to Oregon, you know, um, I I, I kind of got really involved with in theater, and I thought I, I was gonna pursue that path. Um, but in college, my acting professor told me that I was never gonna make it in the acting business. So they really sort of like pushed me to do pursue costume design, wow. which is what I did. And it wasn't until I was working for this theater company and one of my actors that I was in charge of was like, you're pretty funny. You should do stand-up. And it didn't I was always a fan of stand-up comedy, but it didn't dawn on me and I was like, oh yeah, people do that. I should, I should pursue that. So I I, I left small town Oregon and, and moved to San Francisco with the intent of pursuing stand-up. And it's like it's and the minute I I went to my first open mic, I was like, I kinda just got addicted and and I was like I should have been doing this a long time ago there was some there's just something that clicked um, about doing stand-up uh, I, I think it's also because like as uh, the relationship between a performer and, and the audience like with stand-up I it, there's no fourth wall mm. so you it's just it's just you and the audience and and it, I don't know it's, it's it's the most addictive feeling when you have them in your hand you're able to sort of like make them laugh it's it's there's just it's a very hard feeling to describe. It's just not a feeling like it.
1: But it's also very strange too, I think, uh for us right now because we do shows all the time. And uh so I'm really kind of feeling that like thing of like withdrawal from doing stand up mm. comedy. Don't you feel that, Nico? Like it's like yeah. what what, I don't even, I don't know how to like exist without doing comedy.
2: It's weird, you know, like obviously lately I've been more focused on acting and, and yeah, sort of like just just the thought of not being able to do sets, mm. it's kind of like, ah, uh, it's, it's very like, you know, yeah. nobody wants to perform in, in a void. You know, right. that's not why we do this. So,
0: right. It won't be the same if you guys did an IG live, cause you can't hear people laughing and giving you those responses in real time. But I agree with both of you that, I, I mean, I, uh, I don't do stand-up, but I love stand-up. I am a stand-up fan. And I agree that if there's something intimate like about that forum, even though you see these people, they're standing on stage, but because there is no fourth wall and because they let you into their lives, because most people, when they do stand up, there is sort of a portrayal of what they went through. It comes from their experiences and making light of experiences and their observations. Um, it feels like you get to know somebody on a personal level, especially when that energy is authentic. And yet stand-up is very, very hard. I mean, both of you guys make it look like easy to do, but it's a very hard craft to perfect. And sometimes people think, oh, these guys are just naturally going up there and they just have it. But you guys really spend a lot of time thinking about what your standup routines are going to be. And sometimes you test out the jokes in advance to make sure that they make sense and that you get that response that you need. I mean, it's something that you really truly practice and become experts at. So what Margaret you first, what is your preparation for putting together a routine and, and how do you do it?
1: Oh, I think it's just life. I mean, because I think, you know, I've been doing it for so long that it's just inherent in my, it like my mind and my structure and the way that I live stand-up comedy is such a big part of my existence that it's almost like it doesn't um, really take uh, a lot of planning and effort just because it's just ingrained in my psyche to go do it. Um, and it's my social life. It's like most of my friends are comedians. Most of uh, my relationships are with comedians or have <laughs> something to do with comedy. So it's such a big part of everything. Um, so I, I just go and do it. And that that that's, I think it's because I have like, kind of debilitating stage fright and so I have to do it often or else Uh I won't do it at all like I don't want to do it because it's like I get so nervous about it and that's what's kind of like scary to me it's like when is this going to be over so I can start doing it again when I start doing it it's going to be really like kind of overwhelming because it's like Uh we have to get through all of this before we do it and but it's a good time now to start like writing about what's
0: happening and um because everybody will want to talk about it when we're all through. You do not look like somebody who has stage fright or has any anxiety <laughs> on that social spectrum. But yeah. what you what is what you said is so important, which is that's why you have to keep doing it because then the fear yeah. subsides because you're doing it so much.
1: Yeah, it's a very scary thing because it, it's like, oh, I, you know, I if I really thought about the fact that like what you have to accomplish when you're doing comedy, I wouldn't do it. You know, so it's a very it's a weird it's a weird relationship to have with it.
0: Yeah, Nico. What about you? How do you approach your standup routine? Well, you know, I actually find it.
2: Um, I mean, I, I, I do get nervous uh, before doing a set, uh, and I get some sort of anxiety. But I, I do find it a lot easier to talk to a crowd than it is to talk to one person.
0: What? Interesting.
2: Like, put me in front of a thousand people, not a problem. I can, I can go out there talk I'm, I'm still nervous but like it is much easier for me to go out there be on stage talk to a thousand people at once and it's fine one-on-one on a date oh forget it <laughs> I find it very very hard and and I'm I've, I feel like I'm much more awkward uh, and nervous one-on-one um speaking to somebody one-on-one whether it's a date or, or a meeting or what, whatever than I am in front of a crowd I don't know that's that's always been uh the way I've I've, I've operated.
0: That is a surprise to me as well, because I think most people would say, if you put me in front of a thousand people, I will have a panic attack. I mean, most people cannot handle that type of pressure, but what you find more pressuring is just having one person to talk to. So maybe it's good that we're here talking as a threesome because Mm -hmm. if it was just me and you, Nico, I don't know, maybe it would be harder.
2: No, it would would definitely be like, I've, I've been in some podcasts or some meetings where I'm just like,
1: <laughs>
2: yeah, it is. It is easier for me to sort of like address. Uh, address a crowd than it is to address one person
0: well and even though you're focusing more on acting now I know that in Superstore you've said that you guys do a lot of improv you kind of add to it as you're going as well yeah. right
2: It's you, know, and, and that's a whole different process you know like when I, when I got the, the job you know I you know I had been doing stand up for quite a long time and I was like I was like well I've got a good grasp on comedy now it works mm-hmm. but improv is a completely different skill and it's, yeah. it's I had to completely switch gears and then sort of like Learn on the job because I was I was working with some of the best improvisers in the industry, so mm-hmm. it, it was really like a, a quite a learning experience very fast. But um, it's it it's a lot of fun, and it's and, and it's it's really great to be able to exercise a different comedy muscle because it, improv works it's the complete opposite of stand comedy.
0: Yeah, I love improv. And and again, you know, I'm a fan of improv. I, I go to improv shows and I actually took a class. It was an improv comedy class for non-actors. And so there was just a bunch of people like real estate agents and nurses in there. Um, just people who are not actually comedians or improv actors or anything like that. But what I found was so cool was that um, everybody sort of loosened up as you're learning what it really takes to, to, to have fun with improv. And you know, that first rule of of always say yes. It's funny because I, I had a hard time with that because, you know, the intellectual part of your brain or the logical part's like, wait, that doesn't make sense. But you're not supposed to judge it. You're supposed to just go with it. And it was a very freeing experience for me. And I'm really glad that I exposed myself to that. Uh, but also understanding just even from taking a class with non-actors, how hard improv really is.
2: Well, and that's and that's what laughter does, right? It disarms people. And that's that's a great thing. I mean, and, and we, we see, as stand-ups, we see it, you know, like over and over again, like you get up there, and you know, especially if people don't know who you are as a comic, people, people don't know what you're gonna say. But then you get up there, you say that, you, you say that first joke and you get that laugh and it, it disarms people and then you just keep going and exploring and and, and, peop- and the audience you know, as a whole sort of like opens up to you and, and you kind of have this wonderful exchange between the two of you. So, Right. You know, that's what I love comedy so much. It just disarms people.
0: Yeah. And it's all about that personal connection. And Margaret, you have found so much massive success. You've been up to so much right now. You are still, it sounds like recording episodes of your podcast, the Margaret show. So you're getting some kind of social connection, I guess, from time to time. But how do you deal with, you know, when people are, critics. I mean, I just feel like, again, you know, just back to sort of how everybody always loves to have an opinion and they want to judge. That's the other thing about being a comedian and being a trailblazer as you've been, because sometimes people have never seen what you've done before and they want to Mm -hmm. have opinions about it. Sometimes it's negative. So how do you deal with that? How do you find the light and joy in that?
1: Oh, I just don't like read anything or look at it. I really, am actually very closed off to any being negative, (laughs) I'm really like, (laughs) it just doesn't exist to me. Like, I just don't look at it. I don't care. I mean, I don't look at it. And if it, if I don't look at it, it doesn't exist. And that's actually a fine way to, (laughs) to be, um, I do not need to actually like worry about that. I think because I have such a harsh internal critic that Mm. is always weighing in on what I'm doing that I don't need to add to those kinds of voices. It's it's already, it, it already exists within me. So I just make a really valiant effort to be avoidant of anything like that, which actually works for me. Um, I think that it's uh, also like if you're Asian American, you already are very familiar with criticism. Like all Asian (laughs) people, all Asian Americans especially grew up with so much criticism growing up. Like everything about our, uh, I think nurturing system is critical because you know, they want you to get better. Like your families want you to get better. And it's a, it's a real like strident effort to make you better, but because of that, I think we overdevelop that muscle. Um, we overdevelop this idea of being critical to ourselves, and um so i just i mean, I, I I like to ignore yeah.
0: <laughs> I think it's helpful and I think that for a lot of people who just get way too in the weeds about this stuff you know they start interacting with their trolls that are you know haunting them why Why are you doing that yeah
2: sometimes I can't help it
0: <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: and I'm like I, you should have known better <laughs> Fucking engage with you know like a stupid person online
0: yeah I mean it's hard not to be reactive sometimes I guess but that, I guess that's why Margaret is saying you just don't even look at it so sometimes you don't even know what's happening which is yeah, a good it's thing good
1: for me not to know or not to even look at it or you know or block or you know whatever because it's not it it doesn't help me and I I've liked you know I've been at a place where I wanted to do battle with like trolls and then I realized it's actually really a sad person that has nothing to do but hurt others just because they are so hurt themselves so it's almost as if you're doing damage to them by listening because it's it, it's it's kind of kind of a terrible thing. Um, there really actually aren't that many trolls. They just like put on a bunch of different like screen names and identities to try to like get a reaction because they can't yeah. can't do it in life.
0: And that is really sad. That sometimes people feel like they have to hide behind a screen to be able to exert this type of damage and hate and criticism on other people when really maybe they need to work on what's underlying and and try Mm -hmm. to get over it for themselves. I want to talk about four tips that I think are really important in terms of getting into this supercharged secret of laughter. And I would love to hear how you guys each approach this for yourselves. So my first tip is immerse yourself in humor, you know, watch stand up, learn jokes, listen to podcasts that amuse you like the Margaret show and watch humorous TV shows and movies like Nico's Superstore. And you learn more about what humor is when you immerse yourself in a subject, just like any other skill. And it also helps you to learn what kind of humor suits you best and what you respond to. So, How do you guys each apply this for yourselves? I mean, how do you guys keep yourself sharp with humor, especially right now because we're in the middle of this pandemic. And as you said, you're not able to use your stand-up chops quite as much right now.
1: I mean, memes and also just like looking at dumb stuff, like just dumb things, but it's not dumb, it's fun. And Mm -hmm. I think like trying to figure out like what really tickles your funny bone. And that's actually quite a journey unto itself whether that's, um, you know, things that are uh, uh, unexpected. I, I, I just mm-hmm. like uh, to discover more about what I like. And I feel like all of our algorithms really help. You know, if you're going into like YouTube or even like any of your streaming services, you'll, you'll like look at sort of like pay attention to what they're recommending because there's actually smart stuff. So um, I think exploring is really important.
2: Yeah, I I completely agree. I've been I've been exploring a lot lately of different things that uh, that I might find funny, or different things that might give me joy. Um, also, going back to those good old standards that you know make you laugh. So um, I've been like rewatching like shows that uh, <laughs> made me laugh. Like I'm obsessed with what we do in the shadows on FX. Oh,
1: I love I. Love oh it my so god, love I love it so
2: much. <laughs> I mean, and so uh, and honestly, good. like. It's, it's 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 for me. It's like it, it's guaranteed to make me laugh. And you know, this past week has been pretty dark for yeah. me. So I uh, yeah, I, I just sort of put it in the background. And, and even even honestly, even if I was in such a bad mood and it didn't make me laugh, just sort of like having it there, and sort of like having something light. And and I know that it's sort of like bringing out joy out there in the world. Um, was just helpful to just have it out there up, up on the screen. Um, Because otherwise, again, I would spiral and just probably like rock myself in a corner crying, but just sort of like reminding myself, just put something happy, puppies.
0: Yes. Love it. I know, you know, when, when I had had a very long day working in my private practice, seeing patients who are in really dark places, the best thing for me when I come home is to not watch really scary, messed up stuff. Like... I just can't watch serious things at the end of a really uh, intense workday. And I just love to watch things like cupcake wars where their biggest problem is, are they going to make a thousand cupcakes or not? I'm like, whoa, yeah. like, this is the most severe issue they have in their life right now. And that is kind of amazing to me. And you're right about those memes. I think those COVID-19 memes are hilarious, especially the ones about how everybody's going to emerge, especially females looking at, like Neanderthals because we can't see our hairdressers. We don't have people plucking our eyebrows i had to do my own nails uh, for the first time look at my gel.
1: look at the gel. (laughs) yes come on it's horrible i mean i i mean it it's can't even tell you about my feet my feet are just a nightmare it's like how hard can your calluses get well we're about to find out it's really really gross but it's funny because everybody's going through right now is like the, the time of like oh we realize how much we need our um Aestheticians.
0: hundred percent. I am
2: full on embrace that I'm I'm just going to pull a cast away and just let my hair go. (laughs) You know, I can't grow facial hair really, so I don't have to worry about the beard. But like underneath this hat is a big old mess.
0: You aren't the only one whose hair is about to be a big old mess right now. I think we all totally feel you on that. But let's move on to the second tip, which is actively look for laughs daily. So look for the lighter side of stressful situations. As I mentioned, children laugh on average 300 times a day and adults only 15 times a day. Yes, I know as adults, we have more responsibility and we sometimes take ourselves too seriously, but I think it's important to find those daily moments of lightness. Margaret, I love that you said in your pre-interview with one of our producers that uh, being subjected to your own cooking every day. I'm the been... <laughs> worst cook. It's so disgusting. I mean, I, am, I, I, I think I'm
1: going to be at the Hague after this because after, uh, for my war crimes against cooking and food it's really disgusting. And I, I mean, you know, I'm trying though. I'm I'm doing my best.
0: What's your favorite thing to make right now? Top
1: ramen. (laughs) (laughs) I try to spice it up with like salami. It's
0: disgusting. Oh, whoa. Top ramen with salami. It's terrible,
1: but it's like, you know, maybe if I put hot dogs in it, like, I think that'll be better. It's just, it's it's just a disaster, but uh, it's only (laughs) me eating. So it doesn't matter.
0: You're like, it's fine. I'm not judging myself for it, but that's great. I love that. Nico, what's, what's something right now about your daily routine that makes you laugh?
2: My boyfriend and I are very silly with each, with each other. And, uh, the silliness sort of like helps, you know, break that sort of like dark and heavy mood. Um, again, like I said earlier, like, you know, I was feeling really guilty about like taking time for myself and, and sort of making sure that, uh, you know, I wasn't like spiraling into despair, but, you know, like we're all, you know, not just me and my family, but we're, we're all sort of like going through um, this thing that uh, nobody really knows how to handle because it's never happened before. So I, I think it's just important to, uh, yeah, sort of um, don't feel guilty about self-care because uh, it is more important now than than ever.
0: And laughter is such a fun and easy way to Mm self-care. And when you make other people laugh, you're not only helping yourself, you're helping other people. And that's tip number three, which is make someone else laugh. And I know that not everybody can be amazing comedians like the two of you, but if people are interested in just, you know, trying out their comedy chops for fun, just with their friends and family, do you have any helpful tips for them? I myself love telling embarrassing stories about myself. I feel like self-deprecating humor always plays. Oh, yeah. Um, people love hearing terrible childhood stories and I have a lot of yeah. them. Um, but what, what are some of your tips in terms of people wanting to kind of do this a bit more with their family and friends? I think like, it's really, um,
1: you know, uh, I like to talk about, um, uh, shitting my pants because everybody has done it and it's really funny to hear all of the different ways you can do it and, uh, the different situations that it's happened in and why um for my my thing is I I always get too cocky like I can make it to the bathroom I can make it I get real cocky about it
0: you really push push it you push the the limit. limit
1: even um though I I know I I should know better um so that to me is always everybody's got a good uh bathroom uh accident story I think so that's that's a that's a great place to start
0: yeah, toilet humor, Always. bowel movements. Don't be funny. don't be
2: above a fart joke, you know? Just
0: like Oh no, no, never. Yeah. I feel like go for those low-hanging oh, yeah, fruits. Yeah. Why, Why not? not?
1: It's fun. It's right there.
0: Yeah, and even if somebody just laughs out of uh, discomfort because you know that type of laughter too where you're embarrassed for them and you yeah. laugh. That's okay too. It's still beneficial. And and the last thing is to simulate laughter. I think that sometimes people think, well, but my life isn't very funny right now and I'm going through a lot of stuff and it's just too stressful. But it's so interesting because actually there's been research that shows that if you can't find the funny, but you just make yourself belly laugh anyway, that it actually has a lot of those same positive effects that we talked about, about decreasing stress and changing your brain chemistry. And also laughing is contagious. I feel like sometimes when you hear someone else laughing, you don't even know what they're laughing about and you just laugh, start laughing yourself does that ever happen to oh, you guys sure. yeah.
2: giggle fits are my favorite thing in the world like when you sort of like hear somebody else giggle and then it is contagious and then you start giggling yourself and then you can't stop like to me that's one of my favorite types of laughter is is the uncontrollable like giggle fit it's it's yeah it's very helpful
1: that's really fun that's really helpful yeah.
0: Yeah. And I love the kind of laughing where you start crying because it's so funny. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's so intense. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so that's just fun too. I mean, we should all just not take ourselves too seriously right now as we're going through everything that we're going through as a country, as an international people, but also as we're going through some of our own personal stressors and Nico, again, we're so sorry for your loss, but you know, even with this being such a recent thing that you're dealing with, you're still finding the laughter in life, which is so great. And I am so glad that I got to talk to both of you today. You guys are truly helping people, connecting people with your work. Where can people find you and what are you up to? So Margaret, I know you are still doing your podcast episodes. Can you tell us a little bit about that and also your social media handles? uh, Well, uh,
1: I had an episode go up on Tuesday, which is great with uh, Tiffany Haddish. So that's a fun one. We recorded that before all of this happened, but it's nice to go back listen to. She's really funny and really just a wonderful person. But I, um, I'm on um, Margaret Cho on Twitter, Margaret underscore Cho on Instagram, and the Margaret
0: Cho is my podcast, and you can hear it anywhere you get podcasts. Awesome, thank you for that. And what about you, Nico? Where can people Uh, find you? Me
2: in my living room, (laughs) trapped in my apartment. Um, uh, at Nico Santos on Instagram and on Twitter Um, we have on Superstore we have one more episode Uh, next week is our our last episode because unfortunately we couldn't film the actual finale because we were shut down so we have one more episode of Superstore so check that out uh, coming up next week
0: Awesome. And thank you both for making me laugh so much. I feel like just in our podcast, uh, this last hour, I've already laughed a couple dozen times. So I'm already beating the national average for adults and how much we laugh. (laughs) And (laughs) yeah, so you guys have really helped me today. So thanks everybody for listening to this episode of Supercharged Life. If you like the show and want to learn more, then follow me at Dr. Judy Ho. And remember to subscribe, download and tell your friends. I'm Dr. Judy and remember anytime is a great time to supercharge your life.